0: Well, we're at the point where the reactions are mixed. I heard a, a few boos, a few cheers. That's fine. That keeps me humble. It's what I need to hear. Um, guys, it's Sunday. It's Sunday. Do you know what that means? That means it's almost time for you to go home. Oh, I know. I know. I know. It's, it's, a, it's a, sad, a sad thing. We've had an awesome weekend. I hope you guys have had fun. I've had a ton of fun. I hope you've learned a lot. Um, I know... I've learned a lot, even just hanging out with you guys and talking with you guys, answering some questions that many of you have come up and asked me. It's been just a a blessing this week, so thank you. Thank you again for for having me and for letting me open up the Word of God with you. It's been just a a wonderful time. You know, I I love Sundays. Sundays are my favorite day of the week. Um, And a big part of that is because I love getting to wake up on Sunday mornings, going to church, and spending time with the body of Christ. Spending time with the family of faith, spending time with people who, who I love and people who love Christ and worshiping God together and opening God's word together, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But I also love Sundays because Sundays are a great day for television. Do you know this? Sundays are a great day for TV. There's something I always love to watch on Sundays. Um, no, it's not football. Do you know anything about me? Um, no, no, on Sundays, there's this little show that I've watched since I was a, a wee child. Um, now it's called America's Funniest Home Videos. And it's like AFV. I, I love AFV because there's just something that's always funny about guys getting hit in places that they don't want to get hit, right? There's just something is it's just classic, it's always funny. And and America's Funniest Home Videos has been on since like I don't know, the Mesozoic era or something. It's been on TV forever. It's been on TV forever. They change the host, but the host doesn't really matter because they just make dumb jokes. But the point is to watch those videos. And the best videos always involve someone getting hurt in some ridiculous way, right? Um, One of my favorite parts of AFV is also one of my favorite parts of winter camp. It's what I call the long fall. Okay? The long fall is when someone starts to fall. Maybe they trip over something. Maybe here at winter camp, they slip on ice, right? And they start to fall and then they like start to catch themselves and then they keep falling and then they catch themselves and they do this thing. And the best is when you're watching on AFV and somebody starts their fall on grass, right? And they slip and they go, oh, well, and they, they think they're gonna catch themselves and they end up running all the way across the yard, off of the grass, and then they fall, boom, right into the street, right? There's something so funny about the long fall, that kind of physical comedy. And there's this word that maybe you've heard before. Um, It's this kind of weird word, it's a German word, it's called schadenfreude. I think I'm saying that right, schadenfreude. Do you know what schadenfreude means? Schadenfreude means getting joy out of someone else's suffering. The word schaden this, this is me trying this to do German, so, you know, give me a break if you actually know what this means. Schaden, that means, that means pain or suffering. Freud is a word for joy, right? So it's kind of this, like, painful joy. Schadenfreude. And that's what AFV is. It's all this kind of getting joy out of someone else's suffering. Now, you're hoping that no one's, like, actually injured in some grave bodily way. It's not funny when someone goes to the hospital. But when somebody falls for, like, three minutes and ends up, like, on their benounu that's what we call it in wagon train. They end up on their Banunu in some ice. They end up falling and uh, you know, knocking their elbow or something. Like That's always funny. That's always funny um, because on some level, I think we all have this, this idea of schadenfreude. This idea of, of getting joy out of someone else's suffering or pain and, and there are times you know, like laughing when someone falls down and they're not hurt. There are times when that's, that's a harmless thing, but there are of course times when that's a really dark and scary and um, evil thing. And that was the case with Jonah, right? Jonah had this, this joy at the idea of the Ninevites being punished. He had this desire to see his enemies burn, to see them be destroyed. And he had such a desire to see that destruction, to see these people that he didn't like in pain, that when they got mercy instead of judgment, Jonah was angry about it. He was angry about it. So that's what we're going to read today. We're going to read Jonah's reaction to Nineveh being saved. All right? So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open up to the book of Jonah. We're going to finish the book out tonight today in Jonah chapter 4. All right? Jonah 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter for us, and then we'll go back through and, and talk about some of the pieces in there, okay? So Jonah 4. This is immediately following... Um, Nineveh's repentance, when they turn from their wickedness, when they believe God, and it says that God relents of the disaster that he was going to do to them. And then, this is what comes next. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What displeased Jonah exceedingly? That they were saved, that the Ninevites were not destroyed. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, that you're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well To be angry. So, Jonah's getting angry. He's getting angry at God. And something almost funny happens here. He goes to God and he says, God, I knew you would do this. And he starts in anger talking about all of the things that are great about God. Did you see that? He's saying, God, I knew you were full of mercy. I knew you were so loving. Because Jonah hates the Ninevites so much that when it comes to the Ninevites, these things that are glorious and beautiful about who God is, he sees them as negatives. Because Jonah wants God to be loving and merciful to him, but he wants God to be nothing but wrath and judgment towards the Ninevites. And God asks him a very simple question. He says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry. Jonah, does your anger right now make sense? Jonah, is it right that you're mad right now? And Jonah doesn't answer the question. Right, Jonah doesn't answer the question because I think Jonah knows exactly what the answer is. I think Jonah realizes, oh no, it probably doesn't make sense that I'm angry. But he's still angry. He knows that it's not right, he knows that it doesn't make sense, but he's still angry. So instead of answering the question, Jonah goes off outside of the city and he sulks, he mopes. Let's look at mopey, sulking Jonah. Verse five, then Jonah went out of the city, he sat on, uh, to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there and he sat uh, under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, and he made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And then the sun rose, and God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, It is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's being a drama queen. It's better than, for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Familiar question. God said to Jonah, Do you be well? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? So what God asked Jonah once the Ninevites were saved. Do you do well to be angry? And now God has made this plant grow up to give Jonah shade. He sent a worm to take the plant away and now Jonah's angry again and God asks him the same question. Hey, is it right that you're angry about this plant dying? And this time Jonah answers the question. Look what he says. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah sounds a little bit like um, a teenager here. Um, not you guys, of course. You guys, are all, you guys all make sense all the time. Um, but no, but, but he's just, he's throwing this fit because he's angry. He says, yes, I do well to be angry that this plant is dead. In fact, I should be so angry that I could just die right now. But then listen to what God says. Said, and the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So here's what happened. Jonah was angry. Why was he angry? He was angry because Nineveh was not destroyed and Jonah wanted to see Nineveh destroyed. He wanted to see the enemies of God and I think for Jonah it's personal. I think they're his enemies. That's how he sees them. He wants to see his enemies be destroyed. But God is rich in love and mercy and so when Nineveh gets God's mercy, Jonah gets angry. God says, do you do well to be angry? He doesn't answer, he goes off. He goes off to pout. God grows up this shade over him Then God takes that shade away with this worm. And God asks the question again, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah says, yes, yes, I do well to be angry about this plant. And God says this, you pity this plant. You mourn for the death of this plant. You're sad because this plant is dead, yet you were hoping to get joy out of the destruction of 120,000 people. Said you pity the plant, but you wanted me to destroy thousands of people. This plant, you didn't do anything for it, Jonah. You didn't plant it, you didn't water it, you didn't make it grow. I did all of that, and yet when the plant dies, your heart is broken, but you want me to destroy a city full of thousands and thousands of people who I made, who I know who I knit together in their mother's womb. God knows every single person in Nineveh. To God, it's not just this city of these nameless, faceless, violent, monstrous people. To God, it is a city filled with people that he knew before the foundation of time. A city filled with people where he numbers the hairs on their head. He knows absolutely everything about them because he made them knows them, and he loves them. And Jonah was more angry about the death of a plant than he would have been about the death of the people of Nineveh. And so once again, what we see here is we see this huge chasm between the heart of Jonah and the heart of God. Why is Jonah angry? Why is he throwing this fit after Nineveh has been saved? He's doing it because even after all that we've seen Jonah go through, Jonah's heart is still not in line with the heart of God. Jonah's heart is still not in line with God's heart, and Jonah is is being selfish. Was Jonah sad that the plant died because a plant died? No, he was sad that the plant died because it caused him some inconvenience because he lost his shade. He was selfish and even after he was shown mercy even after he made himself an enemy of God by disobeying God and going to Tarshish instead of going to Nineveh, even after Jonah made himself God's enemy, his heart far from God, even after he had been shown mercy He didn't want that same mercy to be shown to the people that he saw as his enemies. Jonah was selfish. His heart was still not in line with God's heart. Many of you in this room have been shown great mercy by God. Many of you in this room, I I hope all of you, but but I'm sure there are some who still, still haven't seen that mercy. still haven't put their faith and trust in Jesus, but but many of you have. And if you've been shown that mercy and grace of Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you've been given a new heart by Him, then your life should be marked by having a heart towards lost people that looks like God's heart. If you've been shown the mercy of God, then your life should be marked by showing that same mercy and love and grace and forgiveness to others. What does God's heart for lost people look like? Well, in the book of Second Peter in chapter three, God spells it out for us. He says this, he says, it is God's desire that no one perish, but that all come to repentance that no one perish but that all come to repentance. His desire is that everyone come to hear the gospel, believe the truth, and repent to turn from their wickedness and come into his mercy. Do we have that same desire? Do you have that same desire? Do you have the desire that no one perish, but all come to repentance. Do you really, deeply, at the depth of your heart, the depth of your soul, do you want to see everyone hear the good news of the gospel and be saved from the judgment that they deserve? Do you want that? Do you desire that the way that God does? And I feel like it's easy to say in kind of an abstract way, yeah, of course I do. Yeah, I would really love for everyone to know about Jesus. That'd be really sweet. Could you go tell him for me, please? Yeah, of course, of course I want that. But it gets a lot harder when we personalize it. See, it's easy to say, I want all of the enemies of God, all the sinners of the world, I want them all to learn about Jesus. I want them all to see God's mercy in their life. I want them all to be given a new heart and a new life through Christ. It's really easy to talk about the abstract of all of God's enemies, all of the sinners. But what about people who we view as our enemies? What about people in our lives who we view as our enemies, maybe people who have hurt us, people who have caused us harm, people who who even just don't get along with, a kid at school who just drives you insane, maybe a bully who picks on you, maybe someone who's caused you much greater harm than that. Do you desire They come to repentance. Do you desire that they hear the truth of the gospel and that instead of the judgment that they deserve? And you know that they deserve it. You know the things they've done. You know they deserve God's wrath. But do you desire that they see that wrath or do you desire that they see mercy and grace and love? See, here's the truth. If you're here, you put your faith and your trust in Christ, then the reality is you were once an enemy of God as deserving of God's justice and judgment and wrath as anyone else, but now you were called a child of God. Your sin has been wiped away. Your debt has been paid. You have been forgiven. And so now... Now, you should desire that those under God's wrath would see that same mercy. That the mercy that has been shown to you, you would show to others. That the grace that has been shown to you, you would share with others. And not just your friends who don't know Christ, but your enemies. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5, he says, You've heard it said you should love your neighbor, love your friends, and hate your enemies. He says, that's what everyone does. There's nothing special about that. I'm telling you something new. He says, instead, I tell you that you should love, yes, your neighbor, but you should also love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, for those who cause you harm. Our desire, our heart, for lost people, for sinful people, even those who hurt us and cause us pain, our heart for them should be the same as God's heart for them. Our heart for them should be that they come to know the truth of the gospel, to repent, to turn from their sin, and to enter into the family of God, into the grace and mercy and love of our Savior. I want to read you guys a passage out of 2 Corinthians I love the way this kind of explains this idea that we've been given so much, and now we're called to to give that to others as well. This is 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It talks about the gospel as this light shining in darkness as a treasure that every single one of us has been given. We've been given this incredible treasure, this incredible treasure of mercy when what we deserve is wrath, what we deserve is judgment. And we've been given the job to share that treasure with those around us, to share that treasure with the people around us who are perishing the people around us who are passing away, the people around us who are still under that wrath and judgment. We've been given the treasure of the gospel and we've been given the job of sharing it with them. Because when we are changed by God, when we're given new hearts by Him, our desire begins to look more and more like His. We begin to desire not to see our enemies punished, but to see them saved the same way that we were. You know, I told you guys a few times this week that I grew up in the church and I did. I grew up going to church every Sunday, every Wednesday and you know, three other times during the week for potlucks or picnics or whatever was going on. I was always there, if the doors were open, I was at church, Um, but there's, a beautiful part um, of of the church that I never really experienced until I was an adult. You see, the Bible is God's word, it's God's revelation to us. Um, But the last book in the Bible was written around 90 years after Christ was born. So around the year 90-ish. So the last book of the Bible was written. And since the end of scripture, since the last book of the Bible was written, God's word, his revelation of himself to us, was closed at that point. Once that happened, there have been almost 2,000 years of church history since then. That means almost 2,000 years of men and women who have been radically changed by the power of Christ, who have been given new hearts and lived new lives because God had changed them and saved them, and the study of this, we call it church history, and it's been something that I've just really gotten into in the last few years, this idea of looking back at these incredible men and women who were so changed by the gospel. And I wanna share with you guys a story of a man who was changed whose heart was changed by the mercy that he was shown in Jesus. And through that mercy that he was shown, he had an incredible capacity to show mercy to those around him, to share the gospel with those around him, but not just those around him in his family, not just those around him in his friend group, but he was able to share the gospel in an incredible and impactful way with his enemies. With people that the world would say he had every right to hate. And I'm willing to bet you already know this guy's name. In fact, you've probably heard it and you probably have no clue who he is. This guy's name is Patrick. You probably know him as St. Patrick. No, not from SpongeBob. Um, but that's great. That's a good Patrick, too. Different guy, though, all right? Um, this guy's name is Patrick, St. Patrick, right? You guys know St. Patrick's today, but believe it or not, St. Patrick, the real guy, was not a leprechaun. He was a real human, a real person. Uh, where do you think Patrick was from? Ireland. You're wrong. He was not from Ireland. He was not from Ireland. Actually, Patrick was from England. Oh, I know, I'm blowing your minds here, right? But wait, Ireland's gonna come into the story, all right? So Patrick was from England. And Patrick lived around the beginning of the fifth century. So in the year like 400, 410, around there, that's when Patrick lived. This is a long, long, long time ago. So he lived in England, but it wasn't like pip, pip, cheerio, England. That, that didn't exist yet, right? This was like a long, long time ago in the year 400 or so, okay? Patrick lived in England and when Patrick, was 16 years old, something happened. When Patrick was 16 years old, his village where he lived was raided by these, these pirates. Again, not like arg, pirates, this is way before that, but, but these men who you know, sailed around and pillaged and plundered. Right, and so when Patrick was 16 years old, his village was raided and Patrick was kidnapped. Patrick was kidnapped, 16-year-old kid, taken away from his family, taken away from his home, and they took him to this faraway land, and they made him a slave. This faraway land is today called Ireland, that's right. So 16-year-old English Patrick, British Patrick, he's kidnapped from his home, He's taken to this place called Ireland and he's forced to work as a slave for six years. For six years, Patrick serves as a slave against his will, forced to work. But during that six years, something happened in Patrick's life. You see, Patrick knew the gospel. He'd grown up in a place where the gospel was preached, but he didn't really believe it. But in that six years, that six years of of pain and suffering and anguish, during that six years, Patrick came to realize the truth of the gospel. He came to realize the truth of the fact that he was a sinner who deserved judgment and God showed him mercy. Well, after six years of slavery, being taken away from his home, taken away from his family and forced to work, Patrick escaped. He escaped and he made his way back to England. And there, now 22-year-old Patrick began to study, to learn, to be equipped and to be trained in the gospel of Christ. Begin to learn, to be equipped, to be trained, to share the gospel, to share the truth of God's mercy and grace. And Patrick felt the call on his life once he was equipped to go back to Ireland to go back to the people who had kidnapped him, taken him from his home, done violence against him, and forced him to work for six whole years without a cent of payment. He went back to those people, not to conquer, not to destroy, not to kill, not to get revenge, but he went back to those people to share with them the gospel of Christ. He went back to those people to tell them about how the mercy of God had been shown in Patrick's life and how it could be shown in their life as well. You see, up to this point, there was very little Christianity in Ireland. They were mostly this this kind of Celtic pagan cult where they worshipped nature, but Patrick went back to tell them about the true living God of the universe, how he made them, how he knew them, how he loved them, how he died for them, and how while they deserved wrath, he offered them mercy. Patrick was a man whose heart was changed by the grace of God. Because if his heart wasn't changed by God, he would not seek mercy for his captors. He would seek revenge. But he didn't. Because he was given a new heart, and his new heart was in line with the heart of God that all should come to repentance. That's what a heart that's changed looks like. Patrick's story certainly isn't the only one of these throughout the history of the church. We've seen time and time again, people witnessing and sharing the gospel with people who have wronged them in horrible ways. And that is the call of God on every single one of us. We've been given this incredible treasure of the truth of Christ and we've been called to share it with the world around us, with our friends, yes, with our family, yes, the kids in your class, the kids on your team, whatever it is, you're called to share the gospel with them, but you're also called to share the gospel with people who have hurt you, people who cause you harm, people who you don't like very much. You're called to love them the way that God loved you. Read one more passage to kind of end our weekend together. It's in the book of Romans. I've touched on it a few times this week, but I want to read it in its entirety to you, not the whole book of Romans, just this passage. Romans chapter 10, I'm going to be starting in verse 11. It says this, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the Lord is the Lord of all. Bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you and I call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. If our friends call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If our parents call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If your teacher calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If your enemies, call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved and we should desire that for them just as God desired it for us. Goes on then in verse 14, it says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? How will they believe if they've never heard? How will they hear if no one tells them? We've been given this task this job we've been shown the mercy and grace and beauty and truth of God and now our job is to share that with others our job is to tell others about the gospel that we have come to know and experience now God doesn't need us to do that for him God didn't need Jonah He could have had the fish walk right out of the water and go tell Nineveh itself. In fact, he does things like that. In the Bible, we see donkeys speaking and sharing the gospel. We see God bringing his truth in incredible ways because God doesn't need us, but but he desires to use us for his purposes, for his glory, for our good. He allows us to be a part of the work that he's doing in calling his people to himself and saving people. That is an incredible blessing. We have been shown such great mercy and now we have the honor and the privilege of sharing that mercy with others, of sharing that grace, of sharing that truth, of sharing that treasure of Jesus Christ with those around us. It is the greatest calling of our lives to preach the gospel. Now, I don't mean that necessarily that means that you're gonna be up here on the stage at Hume Lake one day preaching the gospel. Maybe you will. Maybe you will, but many of you, most of you won't. But you're still called to preach the good news. You're still called to share that mercy, and not just in the future, but today because there are people in your lives right now who are still under the wrath of God, who are still children of wrath because they've not put their faith and their trust in Jesus. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call if they have not believed? And how can they believe if they do not hear? And how will they hear if no one preaches to them? And you are the one that God has put in their life right now to preach the gospel to them. God will accomplish his purposes. And he can and he will use you to do it. But does your heart look like his? Do you love the lost people around you? Do you desire at the deepest parts of who you are to see them saved from judgment, shown mercy and grace instead of wrath? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you love us. Even when we were your enemies, even when we were sinners against you, God, you sent your son to die for us. Father, I pray that our hearts would look like yours, that we would have a love for lost people that looks like yours. God, please grow that in us, that we may share your gospel faithfully the rest of our lives. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.